Welcome to Mr. Eerie's Trick or Treat Theories. Four happily haunted stories for this Halloween season. This is part one of the two-part series entitled The Fate of Macy Hollow, written by Aaron Robbins. This special episode is intended for daring ears nine years and older. On a scale where one is not scary at all, the kids' scare score for this series is a four out of ten. Learn more about this show by visiting MrEeriesMysterySeries.com and please leave a rating or review after the episode. Just a few stars can help an independent writer feel better about who they are. Lastly, we are goodness to grasshoppers. Glad to announce exclusive enlistee content is now available for Apple Podcast users. Take a deeper step into the world of Mr. Eerie's disturbing detective agency by subscribing and becoming an Eerie enlistee. Subscribers will be assigned at least two exclusive training episodes a month, taken directly from the hard-to-keep-on-shelves field guide entitled Mr. Eerie's Empty Book of Everything. Get ready for a roller coaster ride of sips and surprises that will leave you thirsty for more. Your career at the disturbing detective agency awaits. Accept the challenge today by subscribing as an Eerie enlistee in the Apple Podcasting app. Thank you. Welcome to Mr. Eerie's Trick or Treat Theories. My name is Edward Eerie, Chief Uncoverneer at Mr. Eerie's Disturbing Detective Agency. If you're experiencing something odd or unusual, give my agency a ring and leave a message on the machine. For those unconvinced of our ability to handle the phantoms of fall or holiday haunts, please listen to the following client message, which speaks to our ability to manage the mysterious. Please note, our answering machine alters the age and tone of the caller's voice in case a mimic machine or grim personator is listening. And now, another mysterious message left on my machine. Thank you for calling Mr. Eerie's Disturbing Detective Agency. Please leave a message with a detailed account of your odd or unusual occurrence. If you are looking for healthy alternatives to handing out candy this year, please contact extension 6313 to speak with a counselor in our Office of Awful Ideas. All other callers should provide an address so further information can reach you free of eavesdropping ears. Now, prepare yourself. For the beep waits for no one. The holidays are here, Mr. Erie, and I for one am nervous. Don't get me wrong, I like being off school, but holidays like Halloween... Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, well, a lot can happen when you're not sitting in a classroom. I guess that's why, in the back of my mind, I've never been a fan of holidays. Too many decisions to make, and some of them could cost you your life. I speak from first-hand experience. You see, something amazingly awful happened to me, Mr. Erie, something no one would believe. I haven't told anyone yet. I couldn't. I wouldn't. It's just too odd. But like I said, the holidays are here, and I need your help staying alive, so I have to tell you. 
I have to tell someone, because I need your help to make sure I remain human. First things first. My name is Macy Hollow. I'm 13 years old and a freshman at Ciderfields High School. I live two blocks from the football field, where I can hear the buzzers and horns from Ciderfield Cinder's home games, like they were being played in my backyard. It's a curious thing, Mr. Erie. I've lived two blocks from school my whole life. That's because Ciderfield's elementary, middle, and high school are all right next to each other. There's even a park in the middle connecting them. Anytime someone asks my mom where we live, she always says, Ciderfield, two blocks from the blacktops. She'll laugh, point at me, and say, Macy's first steps were towards school. She just couldn't wait to get into the classroom. People seem to think that's funny, but there is nothing funny about walking to school. It's serious business, trust me. When you walk to school, Mr. Erie, you get to experience the seasons. It's hot on the first day of school, which means you arrive sweaty and gross. Then it cools down, and you become an ice cube before first period. The sidewalk goes from a cooktop to an ice pop. Once leaves start lining the sidewalk, I know Halloween is near, and that means I get to leave five minutes earlier, so I'm not rushed in navigating past skeletons, cauldrons, hay bales, and front yard cemeteries. Knock a decoration over, you might get a stern look. Accidentally drag one to the end of the block, and you're definitely getting yelled at. And then there's the house. Regardless of the season, there's a haunted house two doors down. Well, it looks haunted anyway. I should have mentioned that first. It's this old, two-story, dilapidated house with a drooping front porch and sagging stairs. The house is abandoned, so it's pretty much decorated for Halloween all year long. I guess that's everything you need to know. I don't like walking to school, and I like passing a litter of holiday decorations even less. And that feels like a good place to start because the walk to school on October 30th, the day before Halloween, that's the day before it all happened. That's the day I made a mistake, and that mistake is why I'm calling you now. October 30th. It was a wet day, but not cold. When it rains overnight, it makes the leaves on the sidewalk slimy. I left my house at the normal time and was careful to walk on people's grass to avoid slipping on the concrete. It's not trespassing if it's for safety. Two doors down, I came to the house, the house I call haunted. There's an old fence that used to be white, but now is chipped brown and gray. You can't walk on the grass there to avoid the slippery sidewalk, unless you want to get cursed or cut by broken boards. So I stepped onto the sidewalk and moved carefully past the house. Have you ever noticed, Mr. Erie, that the harder you try not to look at something, the more you're sure it's looking at you? That's how I felt about that house, especially on that day with the wind in the branches and that front gate creaking what sounded like a haunted tune. I didn't look in the window, too afraid I'd see something. I just kept my head down and walked, but the more I didn't look, the more I felt the house was looking at me. I quickened my pace, checked for cars, and then crossed over the street at the end of the block. I didn't look back. You never look back at a haunted house like that. Just across the street from the Ciderfield field, I saw my friend August Sinclair standing on the corner. August is my best friend, even though she's a big fan of Halloween. She met me in the street and then turned to walk with me back across the road. Don't forget, she said, Halloween carnival after school. 
Oh yeah, I said, like I'd remembered even though I hadn't. What time? We're signed up to work from four to five. I looked over at August, who had a big smile on her face. Of course she did. She was turning 14 tomorrow. No reason not to be all smiles on your birthday weekend. Remind me why we are volunteering at the elementary school carnival when we could be celebrating your birthday. Volunteer credit hours, she said. Can't graduate without them. And because we're celebrating my birthday after the carnival, she took a few steps away from me and then turned back and smiled. I've got something special planned. See you at lunch, August said, running off toward her first class. As I walked to mine, I recounted my schedule for the day. It wasn't going to be fun. School till 2.30, volunteer at the carnival from 4 to 5, and then some Halloween mystery fun with August until who knows when. I wasn't excited. I mean, I was happy to celebrate my friend's birthday, but when your birthday's on Halloween, you get two parties. One the day before because, according to August, her birthday gets overshadowed by Halloween. But then she gets another party on Halloween because it's her actual day of birth. Imagine that. Two birthdays. Leave it to August to figure out how to win. The school day was filled with the normal day-before-Halloween activities. Lockers were decorated, posters were hung, and Miss Sandoval handed out sugar-free candy. In language arts, Mr. Tucker made us write spooky stories. I don't like Halloween and therefore don't enjoy reading or writing scary stories. Mr. Tucker, I said, can I do an alternate assignment? Yes, Macy, he said with a smile. If you don't want to write a short story, you can write a two-page paper interpreting similes and analyzing figurative language while using prior knowledge to make predictions. As you can probably guess, I chose to write a story. When I was done with it, I placed it on Mr. Tucker's desk. There you go, I said. One spooky story without anything Halloween-related in it. I walked back to my seat, but before I got there, Mr. Tucker called me back to his desk. I'd like you to read this to the class, he said. What? No way, I replied. This should come as no shock to you, Mr. Erie, but I don't do on-stage stuff. The thought of standing before everyone, smiling, and reading some story I'd barely put any thought into, no way. I didn't need that kind of judgment, especially not on Halloween. Presentations are 20% of your grade, Mr. Tucker said. If you don't want to read your story, you can talk to the class about how to develop and support thematic ideas while citing information from reliable sources. With a turn of my head and a smirk that said, well played, I grabbed my short story from Mr. Tucker and began reading it to the class. The Power Plant, a spooky story by Macy Hollow. In the cutthroat world of culinary and plant science, two researchers stood out from all the rest, Dr. Amelia Leafston and Dr. Victor Gelbeard. Amelia was a gifted botanist. In fourth grade, her class was given old egg containers to grow flowers in. Amelia was able to coax her creation into a five-leaf clover. Victor loved desserts, and in fifth grade, used that passion to begin experimenting with gelatin-based snacks. His watermelon wiggle cups were said to be so potent they could make a kid grow two inches in one school year. After grade school, both Amelia and Victor went on to do unorthodox yet impressive research at universities. Amelia began to develop plants that could harvest and regurgitate nutrients from the soil below. 
Victor developed a protein pudding that could turn a seed into a full-grown plant in under an hour. Their methods of research came under fire from scientific communities around the world. And it wasn't long before both were shunned from their communities and kicked out of their respective institutions. In exile, both sought after a place to continue their experiments. Dr. Amelia Leafston and Dr. Victor Gelbert's paths eventually converged. The two scientists met at a rare seed convention when they discovered they'd both bought the same disguises. We met over mustaches. That's what the two said when announcing their plans to build a private laboratory together. Inside their private lab, Amelia and Victor hatched a plan to create the ultimate plant-powered food. Imagine one plant feeding the world, said Dr. Leafston. Yes, continued Dr. Gelbeard. Imagine a plant potted in a pudding so potent it can regenerate its limbs, leaves, and seeds. Plants that were smart enough to cook themselves and strong enough to grow back the parts they'd cooked, said Dr. Leafston. They claimed they were on the verge of creating that very plant and pudding compound, but no one believed them. Enraged by naysayers, the two pushed their experiments beyond the laws of science. Soon, their self-cooking, infinitely growing plant became a reality. But as the pudding potting soil became more powerful, it also became more aware, some might say, self-aware. Similarly, as Dr. Leafston's plant became better at regrowing itself, it too became self-aware. It wasn't long before the two doctors saw they had a problem. The plant began to resent the pudding for being unable to move, and the pudding resented the plant for always trying to leave. The two bizarre experiments began to fight. The pudding would bubble and swirl and try to absorb the plant. The plant would scoop up the pudding with its leaves and throw it onto the Bunsen burners. The once harmonious laboratory became a battleground, and the two scientists found themselves caught in the crossfire. Amelia and Victor rallied to defend their respective creations, but as the arguments escalated, chaos erupted. Both unwilling to change their creations, the two became mortal enemies bent on destroying the other's creation. One night, Dr. Gelbeard released his gelatinous substance into the lab. It oozed around Amelia's ankles and began to turn her limbs to pudding. Before she was engulfed by the sentient sludge, she tossed all of her experimental seeds into the air. The seeds combined in the air and landed in a pool of pudding that used to be Amelia Leafston. Dr. Victor Gelbeard watched as his pudding consumed his colleague. His attention was so focused on the catastrophe that he didn't notice Amelia's plant creeping up behind him. Like a hundred angry snakes emerging from the ground, the roots of Amelia's plant burst through the pudding and wrapped themselves around Dr. Gelbeard. The viney tentacles twisted around his limbs, creeping their way toward Victor's nose and mouth. Months passed, and when no one had heard from the scientists, an investigation was launched. A team of researchers and hazardous materials specialists were dispatched to the lab. Inside, they found nothing but a single seed the size of a watermelon. The researchers took the seed, suspecting it was the work of the two scientists. They promised never to plant it. They vowed not to be enthralled by the bizarre wonder the two doctors had made. But as you know, science is a glutton for curiosity. And the seed that was Amelia and Victor was planted. I, the Amelia Victory, was born a month later. In my first seconds of life, I learned several things. First, I can move and think and eat. 
Second, scientists are delicious, so full of nutrients. Third, it's boring eating the same thing every day. So boring I'm thinking of adding something else to my menu. I hear language arts teachers are full of protein. The end. After I finished reading my story, I kept looking at the paper. I just stood there in front of the class, too afraid to look up and see expressions of disinterest or judgment. Would Mr. Tucker be upset I made him plant food in the story? A second later, he started clapping. I thought everyone else might join in, but they didn't. Mr. Tucker cleared his throat and said, Thank you, Macy. Remind me to never buy a plant from you. Everyone laughed. I didn't think the joke was that good and worried everyone was laughing at me and my story. See, Mr. Erie, Halloween is the worst. I mean, we never write Christmas stories at school. I guess that's because everyone knows how they're going to end. But Halloween stories, I promise. Even if you think you have it figured out, you don't know what's coming. I guess that's why they're interesting. After school, I met August in the library. We got all our homework done and then headed to Cinder Park between the schools. Wood stalls and easy-up tents lined concrete pathways that were serving as the interstate highway for kids dressed as pirates, princesses, and superheroes. August and I checked in with the volunteer shed to get our carnival assignments. Inside a wood stall painted orange with text reading, Make a Difference, all over it, we found a clipboard with a list of names and the stalls those names had been assigned to. Face painting? August said the same thing, almost at the same time, but her version was cheery and excited, whereas mine expressed disbelief and disappointment. This is going to be so much fun, said August. I can't paint kids' faces. What if they want to talk to me, I replied. Then you talk back, Macy. It's not rocket science. Past bales of hay and skeletons made of construction paper, we made our way to the face-painting tent where a line of kids was already waiting. August greeted everyone and introduced me as Ciderfield's greatest face-painter, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that this was a gross exaggeration. Still, the kids looked excited, and a few of them even switched into my line. At my station, I found everything I needed. The school had even provided us with a laminated chart for each design. All you had to do was follow the instructions, and you could get a pretty decent result. I'm not a fan of kids, Halloween, or kids dressed up for Halloween, so I decided to only paint ghosts. Ghosts are easy because a ghost can be anything. I want a mermaid on my left cheek and a starfish on my right, said a girl dressed as a witch. I looked her costume up and down, pretty typical witch stuff. A starfish and mermaid doesn't go with your outfit, I said. The girl frowned. But that's what I want. Sorry, I said. Witches don't go to the beach. How about a ghost? But I don't want a ghost, the girl said, crossing her arms. I grabbed a brush and put some white paint on its end. The girl in the witch's outfit turned her head. I'm not sure if it was a turn of protest or she was making it easier for me to reach her cheek. Either way, I raised the brush and made one white swoosh on her face. There you go, I said. The girl turned to look in a little mirror. That doesn't look like a ghost, she said with a real judgy tone I didn't like. How do you know? I asked. Have you ever seen a ghost? She frowned and nodded back and forth. Exactly, I said, ushering her out of the chair. I looked at the line and yelled, Next! About twelve ghost paintings later, a boy, probably a fourth grader, sat down in my chair. He was wearing a white t-shirt with a large gold belt and a yellow hat. What are you supposed to be? I asked. 
I'm the candle from that cartoon, he said. No, you're not, I said. Yes, I am, the kid said. I promise I am. Well, you don't look like a candle, I said, while loading a brush with some white paint. Sure I do, he pointed at his shirt. This is the wax, the belt is the candle holder, and my hat is the flame. Then he paused and reached into his pocket. He pulled out a felt-stitched flame that I'm sure one of his parents made. The flame had a little white Velcro strip at the bottom, and the kid pushed it onto the top of his hat. That's my flame, he said. The flame flopped over onto his hat. If it had been real, the kid's whole head would have been engulfed in flames. Your flame is a little floppy, I said. The kid in the candle costume tried to get his stuffed flame to stand upright, but it kept flopping over onto his hat. That's okay, I said. Just tell people the flame is being blown by the wind or something. He smiled. Yeah, he said. Someone is trying to blow it out. Exactly, I said. Like a birthday candle. What's your name? I asked the candle kid. Trevor, he said. Well, Trevor the candle. What do you want me to paint? Trevor shrugged. Whatever you're good at, he said. Well, I'm pretty good at ghosts, I said. But seeing as you're a candle, what if I paint you a pumpkin? Trevor tried to look at his own cheek. His eyes strained downward without success. Okay, but not too scary, he said. Got it, I said, cracking open the orange paint. One pumpkin with a silly face, coming up. Trevor smiled and I went to work. I have to say, Mr. Erie, as far as face painting goes, I'm pretty good when I want to be. I caught August looking over at me. Her eyes had that look of satisfaction in them, like I'd finally seen the light of Halloween. She couldn't have been more wrong. I hadn't seen the light, but I painted a silly-looking pumpkin on Trevor's cheek, and I hoped he liked it. I didn't do it because I'd found some new joy in Halloween. I did it because I liked Trevor. His costume was unique, poorly thought out, and questionably assembled. He didn't look like a candle. He looked like a lopsided Q-tip with a yellow clump of wax on the end. And I like that. I respect a kid that wears the costume they want, even if no one else knows what they're supposed to be. Rock on, I said to Trevor as he hopped away from the tent. Don't let anyone put your flame out. I painted a dozen more ghosts, all of which got rave complaints from both kids and parents. The line actually clapped when new volunteer painters arrived. I didn't take it personally, plus I'd left the sophomore taking my place an empty jar of white, so I doubted she'd be able to paint anything better. Just paint lumps of coal, I said to the new painter. Then I looked at the line of kids, because that's what all these little ones will be getting for Christmas. August pulled my arm as if she was worried I was going to say more. I laughed. Then we gathered our things and left Cinder Park. That was fun, she said. No, it wasn't, I replied. Come on, Macy. I saw you having fun painting that kid's face. She was talking about Trevor, and she was right. It was a little bit fun. I smiled. Maybe a little, I said. Well, if you like that, then you'll love what we're doing next. I waited to hear my punishment for showing the slightest interest in Halloween. We're going to Filbur Grave's impossible maze. I had no idea what that was, and my face must have shown it because August clarified. Filbur Graves? she asked. You've never heard of it? I shook my head. It's that corn maze out on Willow Street. Corn maze, I thought. Did I know it? I'd seen plenty of cornfields, and I heard they put mazes in them for Halloween, but I'd never been to one and didn't recall seeing one around town. I don't think I've seen it, I said. Sure you have. You can see it from the freeway. It's the big cornfield that has wood towers sticking out of it. I pictured what August was saying, 
and right away, it made a connection in my brain. I had seen it. It was the mention of the wood towers that made me remember. Yeah, I said, I've seen the towers. I thought those were so the farmers could keep an eye on the corn. Really? asked August. I could tell by the way she asked that I'd said something dumb, but we were best friends, so I didn't feel too bad about it. Okay, Smarty, what are the towers for? Those are checkpoints for the corn maze. You have to go through each one, or you didn't solve the maze, and they've got scarecrows on top of them. Well, people dressed as scarecrows, making sure no one cheats. Wouldn't you rather just go get pizza or something? I asked. I was exhausted from the day at school and from the face painting, and I didn't really want to go walk through a cornfield. What if we did something with less Halloween in it today, and then tomorrow we can do the corn maze? August put her hands on her hips, cocked her head to the right, and smirked. Because, Macy, tomorrow is Halloween, and we're going trick-or-treating all night. I groaned, but August kept her hands on her hips. Come on, Macy, it's for my birthday, she said. No offense, August, but it seems like you're getting a Halloween birthday. And a birthday Halloween? That's a lot of Halloween, I said. August took a step forward and put her hand on my shoulder. I'll tell you what, if you get out of the corn maze before me, then we can skip trick-or-treating tomorrow and go get pizza. I smiled. And if I don't, I asked. If I get out first, then you have to go trick-or-treating with me for as long as we're friends, and you have to enjoy it. But we're going to be friends forever. I said. She smiled. Exactly. We shook hands and walked through Cinder Park toward Filber Graves' impossible corn maze. I'd never been in a corn maze before, but I was ready to beat August to the exit and get this year's Halloween over and done with. Little did I know, inside that corn maze, something would happen. Something terrifying that would change me and Halloween forever. You could hear the Halloween music coming from Filber Graves three blocks away. Two blocks away, the smell of kettle corn filled the air. A block later, August and I were standing across the street, gazing into the warm glow of endless string lights. Are you ready for this? August asked. No, I said, but I'm ready to show you my superior maze-solving skills. We crossed the street and walked under two giant scarecrows holding a canvas banner that read, Filber Graves' Impossible Corn Maze. It's in the back, past all the kitty stuff, August said, skipping forward past old trucks and wagons filled with soon-to-be-carved pumpkins. I chased August past tractors, hay bales, and around several jack-o'-lanterns the size of our neighbor's golf cart. Laughter and screams lived together in some kind of fall harmony. I wasn't loving it, but I wasn't hating it either. At the back of Filber Graves stood an ear of corn the size of two outhouses stacked on top of each other. It was obviously fake, made from fiberglass and painted green around the husk. The kernels were painted a gradient of yellow, orange, and white. And if you looked closely, you could see some of the kernels had human faces pressed into them. Or, more like, human faces pressing out from inside. It looked like there were people trapped inside the kernels trying to get out. They're trying to escape the corn, said August. Clever, I said. A teenage boy with hair so curly I thought it presented a fire hazard sat inside the giant corn cob behind a window. Two for the corn maze, I said. The curly-haired kid handed me two tickets and a flyer with all the rules. Basic stuff. Start where it says enter, 
exit where it says exit. You must pass through each tower and get your ticket stamped by a scarecrow. Fastest time of the hour gets their ticket entered to win a giant jack-o'-lantern. Seemed simple enough. I gave a ticket to August, who tucked it into her pocket. We walked over to an arch of dried corn stalks with hay bales stacked five high on each side. On the ledges of the hay bales were smaller versions of the giant corn cob I'd just bought tickets from. Each of these had a single face on the kernel, some smiling, some screaming. They were cute, creepy, but cute. All right, I said. I don't want you complaining that I cheated or anything, and it's your birthday eve, so why don't you take a ten-second head start? August rubbed her hands together and began stretching as if she were about to exercise. No way, she said. You can have the head start. Miss hates Halloween and hasn't even seen corn before. I've seen corn, I said. I eat it. I don't run through it. Five seconds, said August, and then I'm coming for you. She then let out a very not scary, villainous laugh. You're sure? I said. I don't want you crying later. August got into a runner's starting position and started counting down. Three, two, one, go. Passing under the entersign and through a hallway of hay bales, I took off into the labyrinth of corn. The trail was four or five people wide at the entrance, and despite several paths branching off, it was easy to tell which way to go, based on how worn the path was. This is a piece of cake, I thought. And for a moment, I actually felt disappointed. Corn mazes have a fatal flaw, I thought. The night before Halloween, so many people have been through them that the trail is worn down to street-level smoothness. If I just follow the most worn path, I'll be out in no time. A few turns later, I was feeling confident. I saw August in the row beside mine and playfully shouted, Boo! in her direction. I'm gaining on you, she said. I don't think so, I replied. It looks close, but you're still far away. The truth was, she wasn't far away. I picked up my pace, my eyes fixed on the ground, making turns where I saw the most footprints. Several turns later, the path opened up into a clearing in the cornfield. In front of me, I spotted a large structure. It resembled a lighthouse, but was square and made of wood. The bottom boards were painted blue with Tower 1 written in white paint. There were openings on all four sides, large enough to drive a car through, and lanterns hung from the corners, flickering with LED lights. Inside the tower, several kids were holding out their tickets, and workers dressed as scarecrows were stamping them as fast as they could. I rushed into the tower and handed my ticket to the nearest scarecrow. Don't get lazy, the scarecrow warned. There's still lots more Maisie. I exited the tower and followed a group of kids, but after a few turns, I realized they were lost. I retraced my steps and returned to Tower 1, relying on my memory instead of looking at the ground. It was the first time I felt a hint of anxiety inside the maze. I wasn't anxious about getting lost. I just didn't want to lose the race. If August won, I was sure she'd say something like, maybe you'll beat me next year. I had to win because there was no way I was doing this again. Tower 1 was a four-way junction, but I couldn't recall which direction I had come from. 
I examined the sides of the tower, but they were identical. Crafty Filber Grave, I thought. He must have anticipated this and designed the tower to be symmetrical. Once you made a wrong turn, there was no way to determine which way to go. I decided to stick to a simple rule. Always choose the left path when facing the tower. This way, I'd never make a wrong choice twice. Unfortunately, that strategy doesn't work. Mazes are weird that way. They have a way of making sensible ideas, illogical. The next path I selected turned out to be the correct one. After several more correct turns, I arrived at Tower 2. It resembled the first, except this one had a red base and the lanterns were in a different style. I got my card stamped and sprinted away from Tower 2 in search of the next stamp. According to the flyer, only two towers remained, the yellow one and the black one. I adhered to my strategy of following the most worn path. However, as I delved deeper into the maze, my strategy became less effective. Nevertheless, I attempted to stick to paths that looked more traveled. Minutes later, I spotted the top of Tower 3 peeking out from the cornfield. It appeared to be just a few rows over. I made a left, then a right, followed by another left, and there I was. However, something was off. The tower's color wasn't yellow, it was blue. You've got to be kidding me, I muttered. Back at Tower 1? Ugh! There was no way to discern which paths I had taken before and which I hadn't. Then, an idea struck me. I could observe kids entering the tower and getting their tickets stamped. This way, I could tell who had just begun the maze. Watching where those kids entered from would tell me where the entrance was, so I could avoid it. I watched for a minute and then selected the path directly opposite where the new kids were coming from. I proceeded with a series of correct turns and eventually found Tower 2 again. This time, I thought about which way felt right and then chose the opposite direction. A few corridors later, I found Tower 3. I'd never been so happy to see the color yellow before. It was nearly impossible to discern which direction to leave Tower 3 from. All pathways seemed equally worn. I chose the rightmost path and continued navigating through the maze. After a few minutes, I could hear the music from Filber Graves' main area. The smell of kettle corn also returned. I wasn't sure if I was close to the end, but I knew this section of the maze was close to where I had started. Just a heads up, that information means exactly zilch inside a maze. I turned a few more corners and saw August several rows over, and in the distance, I spotted Tower 4. She'd found it and was heading right for it. That's not all I saw, though. Around August was a small group. August had found a way to win, and shock of all shockers, that way was teamwork. For some reason, this frustrated me. Maybe because I hadn't thought of it. But truth be told, even if I had, I would have still worked alone. I raced off in her direction, but after a minute, I could tell I was no longer heading toward the tower. I'd made a wrong turn somewhere. At the end of a long hallway of corn, I found myself tired and wanting to give up. I bent over to rest my hands on my knees and saw some trash on the ground. I kicked it with my foot and it turned over. I couldn't believe what it was. A corn maze ticket. It's completed, I thought as I picked it up off the ground. Would you look at that, I said. All the stamps, blue, red, yellow, and black, they were all there. Looks like some careless kid has lost his ticket, I thought. And even better, the main area was just at the other end of this corridor. An idea formed in my head. All I had to do was go back about a hundred feet and exit through the corn, just step off the path into the field, and I'd be out in the main area.
I ran down the corridor to the edge of the maze and peered through the few rows separating me from the main area. I was behind the corncob booth. It was perfect. No one would see me exit and I had a stamp ticket proving I'd been through the whole maze. Maybe I could still beat August. Maybe I could finally be done with Halloween. I didn't want to cheat, and I didn't plan on tricking August for long. Maybe just long enough to get out of half of trick-or-treating tomorrow. Honestly, it seemed foolproof. So I just sort of stepped off the path into the corn, and then took a step deeper. Before I knew it, I was surrounded by corn in no man's land. The air was soft and cool between the stalks. It felt good to be out of the maze. A dozen steps later, I exited the cornfield. Soon after, I noticed the music wasn't playing, and it no longer smelled like kettle corn. I'd planned to look like I was reading the flyer. Like I'd been waiting for August for so long, I'd taken to rereading the information about the maze. But when I exited the maze through the corn, I noticed I'd lost the flyer. The flyer and the tickets had somehow fallen out of my pockets. This only bothered me for a few seconds because as I looked around, something far more pressing distressed me. The corncob booth I'd been peering at through the corn was gone. In fact, everything was gone. There was no giant corn booth, no hay bales, no people. I was standing in an empty lot save for a few tractor marks in the dirt. Had I come out on the wrong side? Probably. Mazes are weird, I tell ya. I was sure that's what had happened. So I went back into the cornfield, 10 then 20 feet deep, but to my dismay, there was no maze. I walked back out into the empty lot. There I was, standing alone in a dirt lot at the edge of a cornfield on the outskirts of Ciderfield, alone on the night before Halloween. I yelled for August, but there was no answer, just a faint wind against endless stalks of corn. Still certain I was on the wrong side of the maze, I walked out from the empty lot and came to the intersection August, and I had crossed not 90 minutes earlier. It was like Filbur Graves' impossible corn maze had packed up and taken all the people with it in the span of a few seconds. I couldn't have been more confused, and for the first time in my life, Halloween became scary. Very scary. Rat, would you look at that? It appears our answering machine ran out of tape at this point in Miss Hollow's message. Don't worry, a loud beep and short message plays when this happens, informing callers of what to do next. Most people call back and continue their message in a day or two, just like Miss Hollow did. Please listen to part two of this series to hear the conclusion of this testimonial. while that concludes this part of a message from Mr. Eerie's trick or treat theories, it's not the end of our appointment. If you've enjoyed this message and would like to keep independent detective agencies like ours happy and haunt-free, please consider leaving a rating or review. 
Also consider subscribing to become an Eerie enlistee. For just a few bucks, the empty book of everything could keep you out of the yucks. Don't delay. Subscribe today for exclusive Mr. Eerie episodes available on the Apple Podcasting app. Thank you for listening, and as always, we wish you an undisturbing day.